One day in Rome sat the most powerful man in the world. He was devoted to ruling and building his kingdom, and there would be no other like it. The Roman Empire, friends, at its peak under this Caesar, extended as far north as England, as far east as Asia, and even south into Africa. There had never been a kingdom like this one in all of human history. It covered something like three million square miles, which in an age of tedious transportation and limited communication was an absolutely enormous feat. This Caesar literally ruled the known world and his kingdom was expanding. By the way, the crown that he wore, it had not come to him easily. Gaius Octavius, born September 23rd, 63 BC, was an extremely intelligent, phenomenally gifted, naturally charismatic young man. In fact, when he was 16 years old, the famous Roman orator Cicero said this about him. He's a talented young man who should be praised, honored, and eliminated. He had so much ability, so much natural, raw talent and potential that he was a threat to the powers that be. He was the grand nephew to Julius Caesar who developed a tremendous affinity for him, so much so that in 43 BC, when Octavius was 20 years old, Julius Caesar adopted him and made him an heir to the Roman throne. Then, just one year later, Caesar was assassinated, he was murdered, and civil war erupted around the empire. And Octavius, just 21 years old at the time, joined with Lepidus and Mark Antony to defeat Caesar's enemies. And now together, these three men officially ruled Rome. Soon, because of the competition between them, Lepidus was driven out of power, he was sent off into exile, and the rule of Rome was now left with just Octavius and Mark Antony. And for a, together, and for a time, they ruled together, quite well actually. But then, as time moved forward, Mark Antony began to do some things that bothered Octavius. First, he left his wife, which just happened to be Octavius' sister, by the way, that generally bodes poorly for family relations. Um, But not only that, more than that even, and some of you will remember this from Roman history in school, as time went on, Mark Antony became more and more infatuated with the legendary queen of Egypt. Anyone know who that was? Cleopatra, that's right. And history has done a lot to tell us about their love affair, but eventually Mark Antony began to show more concern for Egypt, more concern for the success of Cleopatra than he did for Rome. And in Octavius' mind, this was absolutely unacceptable. So a long, fierce battle between the two ensued, ending, of course, in Antony's defeat, he and Cleopatra's simultaneous suicides, And Octavius became sole ruler of the largest empire in the known world that now even included Egypt. Friends, by 27 BC, Gaius Octavius had become so powerful that the Roman Senate issued him a new name. Caesar Augustus, the supreme, majestic, revered one. And by the way, up until this point, up until now, this title, Augustus, it was a term reserved for 
and used only to refer to gods. And so what historians tell us is that the tradition of believing that the Roman Caesars were in fact gods themselves and worshipping them as such, it all grew out of and finds its roots in this very moment, in this moment when Octavius receives this name, Caesar Augustus, the man who rules his empire like a god. His boast was that his greatness would reach to the ends of the earth. He was the most powerful man, ruling the most powerful kingdom in the history of the world. And so the gospel writer and historian Luke very intentionally begins his telling of the Christmas story with these words. In those days, in this time, at this moment, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful and influential king and person in human history. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And it's as if Luke starts this section, as if if he starts this story and says, watch what happens now. Now things will start to get interesting. Now we're going to find out, friends, who it is that's really in control. Now we'll figure out who's truly running the show. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. You see, friends, the setting of our story today, the context in which the Christmas story actually takes place is not just with a powerful Caesar, but a powerful Caesar Caesar who issues a census. And a census in the ancient world was conducted primarily for two main reasons. Anyone know why they would issue censuses in ancient times? Yeah, that's one. That's one reason. Taxes. What's the other reason? Yeah, military reasons. The Romans want to conduct a census. They want to keep tabs on the people in their kingdom so they can tax them more efficiently and so they can know who is eligible for military service so they, if they need to, can enlist the right people into their army to continue to advance their kingdom. Taxes and military service. The Romans, by the way, would do this every 14 years. Is this a happy... This is a key point here. Is this a happy or sad moment for the Jewish people? Yeah, is it, are they like pumped? Are they looking forward to this? Is this like an, an event that they just can't wait for and look forward to every year? Is this like, you know, it's that time of year when the world falls in love. Every song you hear seems to say, Merry census, may your registering dream. I can keep going, you know. I'm dreaming of a white census. Here comes census. Okay, I'm done. Um, <laughs> census for the Jews is not a good thing. A census, friends, was a moment for them that they loathed. It was just one big, fat, giant reminder that they were not free. That they were being ruled and controlled by a foreign power, far off and distant, an ungodly foreign power at that, that did not care about them at all. A census was a slap in the face. You notice that Quirinius is mentioned here. It's almost as a side note, really. You see that it's in in parentheses in your text. 
Uh, Luke kind of just brings him up off the cuff almost. And he does this for a reason. Quirinius was famous for a very well-known census that happened later. And during this census, census, massive rioting and revolt broke out amongst the Jews because they hated participating in the Roman census that much. And people and events mark time. They marked time in the ancient world. And it's like Luke is saying to his readers, it's like he's telling you and me, we all know how Quirinius censuses go down in Israel, don't we? We all know how they feel about those. Well, this moment, it was like one of those. For you American history buffs, this is, this is a Boston Tea Party moment. This is taxation without representation. This is riot and revolt and hatred and bitterness boiling over. People around the empire, but especially the Jews, are being forced into compliance against their will, and they do not like it. But the power of Rome is flexing its muscles around the empire. And when Rome, when Caesar says jump, the only appropriate response is how high. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Caesar makes a decree, and the whole world scrambles to obey him. Think of the power. Tom Wright, a a great New Testament scholar, puts it like this. He says, This man, this king, this absolute monarch, lifts his finger in Rome, and 1,500 miles away, in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple must now undertake a hazardous journey at his whim. As this story begins, it sure looks like Caesar's got everything under control. But Luke, he wants us to see otherwise. He wants us to see something else. He frames this moment for us in a very unique way. He adds a very subtle but significant little twist to the story. This census, he says, this decree, this act of worldly power... He tells us that it actually sets up the birth of a certain little child in a certain little city. And to remind us just who this baby, just who this this child is, Luke references a very specific name. Luke's a name dropper. He name drops all throughout his gospel. And he drops this name twice in verse 4. He'll drop it again later in verse 11. What name? And just to give you a clue, it's probably one of the greatest, most amazing names a person could possibly have. People with this name are generally smart, funny, witty, intelligent, extraordinarily handsome. What name does Luke want us to know is associated with this child? David! Say it again with me. David, isn't a good name? Bible name. David is the name that Luke, very intentionally, over and over and over again, three times in the story, links to this kid, the Old Testament king, who, as Pastor Matt talked about last week, whose ancestor will someday sit on the throne of God and rule forever. So now we know that because of this census, this baby will now be born in the city of David. He is in the lineage of King David. This kid has royalty written all over him. 
You see, from a worldly perspective, it sure looks like Rome has all the power. And Caesar is calling the shots. But Luke wants us to know that if we look closely, if we look carefully, if we lift the veneer just a little bit, we will find that there is a greater power at play here. Friends, do any of you know who this is? Anyone know who this is? Anyone? Magnus, somebody knows. Good job. This is Ma- that's your, the, other, the last service. No one got it. So you, sir, I'm impressed with. Uh, Magnus Carlson. This is Magnus Carlson. You guys all know Magnus, right? Magnus is the number one rated chess player in the world. He was a child chess prodigy. He became a grand master in the world of chess at just 13 years old. He first attained the number one spot in the world at 19 years old, and he currently has the highest chess player rating in history. This is arguably the greatest chess player of all time. Let me ask you this. Imagine this with me, if you would. If you sat down to play a game of chess against Magnus, what would happen? How would that go for you? I mean, some of you are thinking, I wouldn't sit down to play. No, I know that you wouldn't. He wouldn't play with you. But if you did, if it just got worked out, what would happen? You would? You would lose. Let's try that again. I didn't feel like you guys really wanted to embrace that. You would? You would lose. We're embracing humility and honesty in our church these days. You would lose. Why would you lose? You would lose, friends, because Magnus is lots smarter than you. And I know that's hard for some of you Intel guys to admit. But he is. What would happen if you sat down to play chess against Magnus is that he would anticipate all the possible moves you could make and then he would have in his mind a counter move and a move after that and maybe even a move after that, a plan of action for every single one of your possible maneuvers. No matter what you did, no matter what move you make, he would counter and he would use your move for his advantage. That's exactly what we see God doing in this story. Caesar makes a move. It's a big and it's a bold move, but God, he's got a move of his own. Embedded into the story of the man-king who was declared to be a god is the god-king who humbled himself to become a man. You see, even though it doesn't look like it, even though... Not very many people are even aware. Even though to the casual observer, it certainly looks like Caesar is calling the shots. The message of Luke, the message of Christmas is this. God is in control. I'll say it again. God is in control. Do you know that today? Do you believe it? I hope so. We're two days before Christmas. And some of you need to know that even though there are Caesars and rulers and forces and powers acting and moving all around us all of the time, God is still in the background. He's still in the business of making moves and counter moves in this world. He's still in the business of using hard things, the unpleasant, awful, census moments of your life for His glory and our good. 
He can do it because he is good. He can do it because he's smarter even than Magnus. He's infinitely smart. He can take every single move that every single one of us could possibly and will possibly make. He can anticipate it and he can weave it together and use all of it for his glory, our good, and to accomplish his purposes and plans in this world. This is the story, friends, of a sovereign God. Hear this from me today. Because sometimes life is hard. And sometimes it feels like the Caesars are running the show. And there's no one on the wheel and no one has control. But the message of the Bible and the message of Luke and the message of Christmas is there's a bigger plan at play. While they were there, verse 6, while Mary and Joseph were in the city of David, that's where we are, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. Who is it, by the way, who inherits kingdoms and thrones? Firstborn sons. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Wait a minute. That has got to be a typo. I mean, isn't it supposed to say something like, and he was born, claimed the throne of his father David, and ruled on high, freeing his people from Roman tyranny. That's how these stories are supposed to go. That's what people would have expected and wanted and longed for in Jesus' day. Instead, we get cloths and a manger. Did you know this? Poor people use claws. The poor people in Jesus' day would tear strips of cloth to wrap their babies in. And that word manger is actually best translated feeding trough, but no one likes to sing away in a feeding trough, so we just leave it manger. But to be very clear here, friends, this is the thing that animals eat out of. The King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the God of Earth has come. He's in an animal feeding trough. And there were, and it just gets worse, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. This is another one of those shocking moments. If you're reading this story afresh for the first time, and you were a first century reader, you're thinking to yourself, you know, who's the PR director for God on this thing? Who came up with this, this rollout plan? This is... The center of your big earthly arrival and putting shepherds right in the middle of it, that does not seem very advantageous at all. Friends, do you know who shepherds were in the first century? They were like the lowlifes of society. They were like Boston Red Sox fans. They they were considered... Stay with me now. Our church attendance has gone down since last hour, Matt. They were considered to be insignificant. This is true. They were, they were uneducated. They were unskilled. They were basically ignorant. Most of the time, the night shift was given to the kids. In fact, as time developed, shepherds began to be more and more despised. Their testimony was not even accepted in a court of law. They were considered to be unreliable, untrustworthy, unsavory characters who were largely suspected of stealing sheep and doing all kinds of illegal things. God has come to earth. He's wrapped in claws. He's laid in the manger. And now the message goes out to shepherds, to the thugs and hooligans of the culture. 
And they don't just get a message. It's not like they got like a memo or a post-it note or something like that. We're told this. Listen to these words. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Very specific language that Luke uses here. In the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord is almost always associated with the tabernacle or the temple. And it has to do with the actual presence of God. The actual presence of God at one time thought to only be contained in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies is now out, it's loose, in some remote field outside of Bethlehem and it's shining around shepherds. Here's the point. One of the elders asked me this week, why does Luke, writing to an elite Gentile aristocrat, go out of his way, like pulls out all the stops to highlight the meagerness of Jesus' birth. It seemed like he'd try to highlight some of the higher points or the finer things, but he he goes out of his way to highlight the meagerness of Jesus' birth. Why? Here's why. Understand, friends, that Luke is telling us the story here of two kings. One in Rome, the other in Bethlehem. One on a throne the other in a feeding trough. One clothed with royalty, the other wrapped in rags. And Luke is very clearly saying to us this, we all know how kingdom one operates. We all know about Rome. We know about Caesar. We know how they work and how the world works with them in control. There is fleeting hope. When Rome has the wheel, when Rome is in power, when Caesar is calling shots, there is fleeting hope in this world for wise, smart, gifted, talented, privileged people. They're the only ones who even have a chance. But this kingdom, this new kingdom, this other king, born this day in the city of David, this is a kingdom that reaches down and makes the God of the universe eternally available even to shepherds. Again, the very clear point Luke is making here, this is a radically different kind of king who brings a radically different kind of kingdom. Luke intentionally, very obviously for his first sense, he he punches them in the face with this. This is no subtle point that he's making. This would have smacked them upside the head. Am I allowed to say that in church? He drives this point into them so strongly. Listen to this. Listen to some of the propaganda and remarks that were floating around that were widely popular and well-known in the first century. The claims of Caesar Augustus, Gaius Octavius, and this, again, common language throughout the empire, right during the time when Jesus was born. Octavius was known as, and see if this sounds familiar to you, the King of Kings. It was a title that he wielded. He was called often the savior of the world. In fact, there's an ancient Greek city where archaeologists have uncovered a stone with an inscription in it, and that inscription reads like this, Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. His kingdom moved forward through force, and it struck fear in the hearts of all the people in its path. And even though Caesar's armies, they brought devastation and destruction... Even though that was the truth, that was the reality, he claimed to be the savior of the world who brought security and peace to the nations. In fact, when his forces would move in and they would 
brutally defeat and take over a region or a people group doing horrible, unspeakable things, they would say this, on the heels of that sort of an advancement, they would say these words, the peace of Rome has come to this region. The peace of Rome be with you, they would say. Octavius himself would say, my peace I give to you. Do those words ring any bells for you? My peace I give to you. And what he meant by that was the peace that comes when I'm in control, the peace that comes when I'm calling the shots, the peace that's available when you put your faith and trust in me, when you put your faith and trust in Caesar, when you put your faith and trust in the great Roman Empire, then you'll have security and peace. That's the message of Caesar. Statues were built to honor him, and at the end of his life, people worshipped him by saying these words. Again, common words, well known by Luke's first century readers. Listen to them. Glory to Caesar in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom Caesar's favor rests. Now, let's go back to Scripture and read Luke's account of the Christmas story one more time. Do you think he uses this language on accident? No, he doesn't. But the angels said to them, to the shepherds, we're back in the field, but the angels said to them, the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for Romans, that will be for Jews, God's chosen people, that will be for... All the people. You see, this new kingdom is radically inclusive. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Not just a false Savior, not just a Savior with propaganda attached, but a real Savior. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. He will reign on high and sit on a throne and advance His kingdom at all cost. No. This will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. You see, friends, the message of Christmas is that there's something subversive There is something revolutionary. There is something radical and powerful and unique and potent and pervasive and world-changing and even life-altering happening in the little town of Bethlehem. It's a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that, that skips the propaganda and empty promises of this world and offers something deep and true and eternal. Notice that Luke in verse 13 says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared. Do you know that word company in Greek? That's a military word. Octavius, he had a standing army of something like 500,000 soldiers. It was the largest army in the world by far. But the army of God, the forces of the Lord, the army of the true king of kings, they aren't singing in Rome. They're in a field outside of Bethlehem proclaiming the good news of great joy for all the people. The question, friends, for us at Christmas is this. Where have you pinned your hopes today? 
In what have you put your faith? What are you looking for? Who are you looking to? What are you looking to for peace, hope, security, salvation? You see, the Christmas story says, quit looking to Rome. Don't look to Rome. Don't buy into the propaganda. Do not put your faith in the empty, fleeting promises of this world. They will pass. They will fail. They will fall. 300 years later, this empire, the Roman Empire, the greatest in the history of the world, gone, annihilated, dissolved, The kingdom of God, 2,000 years later, still marching forward. Not through force, not through intimidation, not through coercion, but through love and grace and humility and truth. Because here's the truth, friends. There is a true king. There is one who offers real peace. There is one who offers lasting hope and real security and joy and salvation through love and grace to all and anyone, no matter who you are, if you just believe. The message of Christmas. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Amen. Father, this morning we thank you for coming in a radical new way to launch a radically new kingdom. And we ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, living and moving in our lives, would help us to live radically new and different lives. Help us to embrace grace and love and humility and truth over power and prestige and prominence and intimidation. Keep us from the ways of the world, especially as we represent you. That is our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.